This morning, we're going to continue in our message on the Gospel of John. This is going to be a very different message this morning. Um, We're going to get into John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and then we're going to kind of cut the sermon off a little bit and move into a direction of teaching, which I think many of you will find very interesting. The Gospel of John, part 2. I'm sorry, part three. Over the last two weeks, what we have been establishing what the Gospel of John is. It is not just a book about the facts of Jesus, but it is a book about who He is. It's a book about His character. It's about His attributes. Amen? Last week, we looked at His baptism by John the Baptist. How many remember? And we talked about the Trinity. We talked about the truth of the Trinity. We ended with Jesus calling His disciples... And saw, remember, his, the personality of Jesus. We saw the personality of Jesus and him dealing with the disciple called Nathaniel. This week, we are getting into John chapter 2. And I want to start, uh, I want to jump right into Scripture this morning. And we begin with John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And it says this. Are you listening this morning? Hey, good. Amen. John 2, verses 1 through 3 says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. There was a wedding. How many know weddings can be a good time? How many have ever been to a good wedding? How many have ever been to a bad wedding? Yeah. I don't do the chicken dance, Noreen. No, no. Jesus, how many went to a bad wedding that I was involved with? Praise the Lord. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Amen? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Those familiar with this account of Jesus will recognize that this, we will soon see his first miracle. His first miracle. It marks the beginning of his three-year ministry. You know, we we know very little about Jesus before this point. We know a little bit. We know that we know about his birth. We know about the events surrounding his birth. We we know that a, a little bit about his time as a young man at the age of twelve. We know that at twelve he was he was in the temple and he was listening and he was answering and his parents had had thought they lost him for a few days and. They were, the, the scholars were amazed by him. We know a little bit about Jesus' upbringing. We know a little bit about him as a 12-year-old. But, but here's when we finally get to behold who Jesus is. This is where we finally get to behold his character and his attributes. After calling together his disciples, we see that Jesus was invited to a wedding. It was a, this is, how many ever been to like a really sad wedding? I haven't. Oh, she has. That's not good. Uh, I haven't. Usually weddings are celebrations. Amen. Jesus was there celebrating with them. Jesus was a part of the celebration. It would do us well to remember that Jesus wants to celebrate with us. Amen. Can I get amen? amen. Jesus wants to celebrate with us. 
He wants to celebrate in our victories. He wants to hold on to us and care for us in our defeats. He wants to be with us there in tragedy. But He wants to celebrate with us in our life. I believe there is rejoicing in heaven when people get married. The right people, by the way. Come on, there's some people who, sh- there's some people who shouldn't be getting married. Amen? That's right. It's true. Bryce and Rachel, you are not one of those couples. You should have been married. God bless you. I believe the angels were rejoicing. I believe that Jesus was celebrating with them. Not only that, but listen to this. I like this. The wedding is a picture of what exists between us and God. One pastor said this. If you want to have a good wedding, make sure you invite Jesus. If you want to have a good wedding, make sure you invite Jesus. Invite him into your wedding. Invite him into your marriage. Amen? Biblical historians will tell us that these weddings lasted... How how long do you think these weddings lasted? Let's just get a a number out there. Who said days? Anybody? Months? No? Year? No, I'm just throwing that out. Seven days. Seven days. Can you imagine a seven-day wedding, Joe? Seven days of a wedding. Jenny and John, seven days of celebration, right? (laughs) Seven days. During this time, uh, we have our customs today, but during this time, it was both the bride's family and the groom's family. It was their responsibility to provide basically unlimited food and wine. Unlimited refreshments. Bobby's laughing. He's like, Are you kidding me? Unlimited. It was expected that these would be provided continually throughout the celebration. And if it wasn't, it brought shame upon the families. You have to understand in a small town. Can you think of it, Kay? Remember when Braxton got married? That, oh, they ran out of fish. There wasn't enough pop in the, I say pop, you know what pop is, right? Soda pop, no? There wasn't enough pop in the machine. It would have brought shame upon your family, right? I'm glad that didn't happen. The food was very good. But here's what happens. The wine runs out at this wedding. The wine runs out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I want you to imagine that in this wedding, there's a good chance that it was somebody that was a part of Jesus' family. We're not sure exactly who was getting married, but we can, he was invited. All the disciples were invited. Mary was there. It's speculated that Mary was kind of in charge of making sure everything went well. Carol, do you know what I'm saying? Kind of in charge of making sure everything went well. So imagine at Braxton's wedding, Carol, you helped out quite a bit, right? Yeah, right? I don't want to spotlight you, but you helped out quite a bit. And imagine that Carol gets frantic because they ran out of something. So she goes to her son, Bryce, says, Bryce, they ran out of this. This is what Mary is doing to Jesus here. They had run out of wine. And the mother of Jesus says to him, Mary, she says, they have 
no more wine. Jesus responds to Mary in an unexpected way. Go to the next slide. It says this. Jesus said to her, woman? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in, in today's language, we would read this like, woman? Right? Come on. Most people, when they saw that, they went, woman? He wasn't saying like, uh, I'm not going to go there. I, I need to, <laughs> I'm going to bring it back a little bit. Woman, what does this have to do with me? He wasn't saying this in a disrespectful way. He wasn't saying like, woman, come on. What does this have to do with me? What he was saying is, woman, what does this have to do with me? There's a, Jesus refers to his mother with a term of respect, but he doesn't call her mother. It's very interesting here because Jesus wanted to emphasize that he's about to move into a different relationship with her. Woman, what does this have to do with me? What it had to do with him is Mary knew that Jesus was capable of fulfilling the need. How many know that Jesus is capable of fulfilling your need this morning? Mary hears his words and know that, you know, he says, my hour has not yet come. And you say, well, Pastor David, what does that mean? It means he hasn't revealed himself as the Messiah yet. He hasn't revealed himself to the people as Messiah yet. My hour has not yet come. And she says this. I like this. She speaks the words that would be a direction to not only those who are there, but it's direction for all of us today. She speaks these words. Go to the next slide. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Isn't that good direction for today? Isn't that, isn't that the very best direction for today? You, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. You know, it's interesting that we, we don't know a lot of the words of Mary. There's very little recorded about the words of Mary, but when her words are recorded, they carry a lot of weight with them. They carry a lot of weight. This simple task, do whatever he tells you. Follow his direction. Listen to his words and do them. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? Do whatever he tells you. How many know that if we would just do whatever he tells us, our lives would be so much simpler? If we would just do whatever he tells us, if we would go where he leads, if we would follow his direction, our lives would be simpler and freeing. Do whatever he tells you. Mary tells us to the servants and we see what happens next. Go to the next slide. It says this. Here's what happens. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Six stone water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. What is the brim? Filled them up to the very top. They were at capacity. 
And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast would have been today's equivalent of the caterer, person in charge of the feast. Jesus instructs the servants to fill the jars to the brim. Using simple math, we can see, just simple math, we have six stone water jars that are 20, let's say 20 gallons each. How many gallons is that? Public school. (laughs) All the homeschoolers know it right away. (laughs) Six times 20 is... 120 gallons, right? Now, if, now, if there was 30 gallons, if there were 30 gallons, then it'd be 6 times 30, which is 180. So we have somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of liquid, of water that's being put here. That's a pretty good amount of water, right? That's a pretty good amount of water. Jesus then says, draw some out and take it to the master. Take it to the master of the feast. I like what one commentator said. He said this, Imagine the faith of the servants who simply did what Jesus told them. Imagine the faith of the servants who, who just did what Jesus told them. Had they only taken water to the master of the feast, he undoubtedly would become angry. But they obeyed without question, and they took part in the blessing. They obeyed without question. And it says this, go to the next slide. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Everyone, I mean, this is what he said. Everyone serves the best wine first, right? And then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. But you have kept the good wine until now. Right here, we are ending in verse 10 of John chapter 2. This marks the first miracle of Jesus. The first miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Now, before we move forward, I want to take a step back and say we're going to move into a different function of the service this morning. I want to take a step back and address what would be described as one of the heavy issues facing Christians. You know, it would be very easy for me to skip past this. Just move right into the next miracle. It would be very easy for me to skip past this and move on, but... We're going to take a short break from the Gospel of John because I believe there's an opportunity here for pastoring. I believe there's an opportunity right now for pastoring. To pastor means to guide people towards right living with God. To pastor someone is to guide people in in both spiritual and practical matters. And so we come to this question that has been asked for many, many years. And the question is this. Should a Christian drink alcohol? Should a Christian drink alcohol? I want to say this. I've looked at this from uh, different perspectives and taken sources from different pastors and theologians. In in preparing this sermon, uh, I knew that it would lead into this question. And while I didn't plan it this way, 
Uh, fortunately, there was one pastor that I gather from that did a teaching on it. And he did it uh, recently. He did, he did it on the very same passage and the same subject that I was already going towards. And I wanted to use it as a guide in sharing the word with you this morning. It has such great content, I didn't want you to miss it. So the question is this. Should a Christian drink alcohol? I am fully aware that there are different views on the subject this morning. There are some that are staunchly against it. There are some that are maybe a little too staunchly for it. You know what I'm saying? If I, you know, uh, <laughs> it was funny. Some uh, pastor said, uh, what's your first reaction if if I say the word alcohol? And from the audience, he heard someone go, "Woohoo!" <laughs> he said, sir, we have a group that meets on Thursday night, so that would be great for you. How many know that there are three laws that we live our life by? There are three laws that we live our life by. Some choose to put them in different priority, but there are three nonetheless. There it is. Go to the next slide. It's that we, are, we have, number one, God's laws. Number two, we have man's laws. And number three, we have our own law. That is our conscience, our judgment, right? As Christians, what should our first priority be? This is not a difficult question. As Christians, God's law should be our first priority, right? Above man's law and above our own judgment. Do you know that? Above our own judgment, above man's law is God's law. There are some issues that are simply black and white. This is right. This is wrong. This is sin. This is not. For instance, uh, God gives us clear direction on them. Amen? Amen. For instance, it is uh, not illegal by man's law to commit adultery. But God's law clearly condemns it. Amen? God's law condemns it. It's not illegal by man's law to have bitterness in your heart. Right? But God's law says no. It's, it's not illegal. Because here's the thing. God's law is the standard and should be the standard of our lives. God's law should be the standard of our lives. So with that understanding, the first question we should always ask ourselves when it comes to practical issues is this. Not what do I think about it, not what does man think about it, but what does the Bible say about it? Amen? Why? Because first and foremost, we follow God's law. What does the Bible say about it? The first verse I want to look at is this. Romans 13, verse 1 through 2 says this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Hear this. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Whoever whoever does so will bring judgment on themselves. What's interesting here is that following man's law, 
according to Scripture, is also following God's law. According to Scripture, following man's law, being subject to the authorities, to the governing authorities, is also following God's law. In this country, we have laws. Amen? Come on. I know this is a small country church, but you can be happy about the laws of the land. How, how, many, uh, how, how many broke a law this morning? We've got some honest people here. Sometimes you, some, some people broke a law this morning. The speed limit coming down the road is 55 miles an hour in some places. In other places, it's just, uh, it's, uh, she says, just a suggestion. <laughs> other people say, I have a heavy foot. There's nothing I can do about it. That's what I say. <laughs> How many know that we are directed to not only obey the laws of the land, and but unless these laws go specifically against the Word of God. Okay, let me say, unless these laws go specifically against the Word of God, God expects us as Christians to follow the rules, to follow the law. Amen? I, I need a louder amen than that. Amen? amen? In this country, the legal age to drink alcohol is what? 21. 21. Some people said that a little too fast. That means if you're not 21 and you're consuming alcohol, you are breaking the law, both man's law and God's law. Do you hear me? So, oh, Pastor David, isn't that a little bit uh, legalistic? No, no, no. We're going to get into what legalism is. This is us as Christians following the word of God. We're going to get into what legalism is and what it's not. But I'll be the first to admit that I have not always obeyed the law. I know. it's. I don't think I sped on the way here, so that was good. And I was wearing my seatbelt. But you know what? Here's the thing. I have this in my notes. I think some of the laws are downright stupid. <laughs> I think some of the laws are downright stupid. I really do. I, I can't tell you how many times I tell my wife, this is a law because of those stinking insurance companies that I got to wear a seatbelt all the time. It's not because they want to prevent my head from going through the front glass or anything. When I was a young driver, uh, I was driving with my little brother, Ben. My little brother, Ben, looks like my son, Eli. He, he looked like my son, Eli when, Eli, when Ben was little. He looked just like Eli. And so whenever I think of this now, it makes me laugh a lot. Uh, I was driving with Ben. I was in my parents' station wagon. I was 16 or 17. I had just been driving for a little while, and I couldn't stand wearing a, a seatbelt. In fact, I had learned a trick. I'm not going to tell you what it is. To get around the seatbelt uh, light dinging beep thing. I couldn't stand that. My brother Ben was driving with me. He was in the front seat. He was probably about eight years old, I want to say. He was in the front seat, and he was sitting. I can't really do it like this, but he was sitting in the front seat, and he was sitting like this. He wasn't sitting down on his bum. He was just kind of up on his legs. And I said, Ben, sit down. He said, no. I said, Ben, you're going to get hurt. He said, don't worry about it. I said, Ben, put your seatbelt on. He goes, no, I'll be fine. So I slammed the brakes. 
man's head went into the windshield and cracked it all the way across. It wasn't like a bump and I could hide it. This wasn't like a bump and, all right, we're going to get your sister's makeup and we're going to cover this up. Nobody will ever know. This was Ben slammed his head into... Somebody explained some issues he has now. I'm not, I'm not sure. Ben, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, I got in a lot of trouble. Some of the laws I think are stupid, right? I mean, there's just some I don't like. How, uh, chances are I'm not in this boat alone. Right? Come on, let's be honest, all you perfect people out there. I'm not in this boat alone. We've either broken a law or we think we don't have to obey it because it's stupid. And I'm not going to say that it's okay or even excusable, right? What I will say is we all need forgiveness. Amen? We all need forgiveness. Amen? So when it, when it comes to alcohol, we know the legal age, legal age in the United States. What is God's law? Ephesians 5.18 says this. Go to the next slide. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Romans 13, 13 and 14 says this, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe ourselves, yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What is God's law on it? You know, there's other scriptures on it than just this, but the gist is just the same. Do not be drunk. That is the essence of God's law. There's a word here used, uh, debauchery. How many know what debauchery means? I asked a few people what debauchery means uh, yesterday, and not, nobody really knew. It means this, excessive indulgence in sensual pleasure. Excessive indulgence. Being drunk is excessive indulgence. This is God's law, clear cut. There's no arguing with it. Man's law doesn't say you can't be drunk, but it does say that you can't be drunk and drive a vehicle, right? God's law says do not get drunk. You say, Pastor David, I've never heard you kind of preach on this or preach this way. In following God's law in our lives, we as Christians can practically apply the Scripture in saying that as Christians... It is not right for us to be drunk. Amen? I'm going to need a louder amen than that. (laughs) See, this is why it's firmly established in Scripture. In Proverbs, the Bible says that wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Now, I will say that this too is in reference to excess. It's not in reference to moderation. And that's what we're going to talk about. So it comes down to this. As a Christian, that's of legal age, can I consume or should I consume alcohol? And that's where we're going to end the sermon this week. Nah, I'm just kidding. I can't, I can't do this. Okay. <laughs> what? Some may say, Pastor David, is this really something we should talk about? Is this really something we should talk about, Pastor David? Here's the thing. Yes. 
The answer is yes. Why? Because we as the church can't be afraid to to tackle tough issues. Amen? We as a church, you know, this has become a taboo subject in most churches. We don't talk about sexuality anymore. We don't talk about drinking. We don't talk about drug use. We, we just kind of sweep it under the rug. When it, no, no, no. Reserve that for a Wednesday night class. Reserve that for a Sunday school class. No, no. This is the church. I, as your pastor, have a responsibility to help guide you towards righteousness. Amen? And, and usually when it's talked about in church, it's only talked about from the perspective of alcohol is evil. It's evil. The evils of alcohol. I want to guide you towards a biblical perspective in all things. In all things. There are three main views when it comes to alcohol in the church. The first is this. It says, first is this. Go to the first slide. The prohibitionist view. The prohibitionist view is this. It's very simply, alcohol is evil. Right? If you've ever been in a church where this is the view, alcohol is evil. It should be stayed away from at all costs. It will lead you to hell. That's that's the prohibitionist view. And in truth, I grew up in this view. I grew up in a uh, very conservative Dutch Reformed community. And anybody who was seen buying alcohol or consuming alcohol, they were looked down upon. We looked down upon them. We did. I still remember the pastor of the church I grew up in telling us as a church that if he ever went to a leader's home and there was beer in their fridge, they were sat down. They're done. I still remember that. It was evil and it was sinful. There's a few things wrong with this view. There's a few things that are wrong with this view. So, Pastor Dave, what do you mean wrong? Well, the first thing is it's not biblical. It's not biblical. I don't want you to leave in case this is your, your brand of view. But the truth is, it's just not biblical. If all alcohol is sinful and it will lead you to hell, then why was the first miracle Jesus did and make water to wine? I don't understand that. Then why is the first miracle Jesus did make a bunch for a party? And, and listen, they had already been drinking. They had already been drinking and Jesus made the good stuff. Come on. Don't, come on. I know everybody can clap right now. Because I'm going against some, some, some predisposed conceptions here. What, I've had some Christians, people that I love, tell me, well, Jesus just, he made grape juice. He made grape juice. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually, without going in, there, there's various words for wine in the Bible. The word used in John is the word oinos. Oinos. Say oinos. Oinos means this. It's a wine derived from grapes. It's a wine derived from grapes. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean grape juice. There's different words in the Bible for grape juice, but that's not the word used here. Amen? How many can say amen? How many can say, Pastor David, you should move on to something else? We see Jesus made the best wine, right? So, uh, one commentator, a pastor, he said, he said, imagine the, the very best aged Wine. The very best. It's not, it's not two buck chuck that you get from, that's what he said. I thought it was pretty funny. What's two buck chuck from? Trader Joe's or something like that? I guess that's a wine. It's a cheap, 
This is the very, very best stuff. The very best stuff. As Christians, listen to this. I believe that we should live in holiness. I really do. I believe we should live in holiness, but we shouldn't try to be more holy than Jesus. The Bible says multiple times that Jesus drank wine. And at times, the Israelites worshipped with wine. We shouldn't try to be more holy than Jesus. If you are trying to be more holy than Jesus, then what you're getting into is called legalism. C.S. Lewis said this. He's a theologian and the author of the book Mere Christianity. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. They may give up marriage or meat or beer or cinema. But the moment he starts saying that things are bad in themselves and looking down his nose at other people who use them, he has taken the wrong turn. He has taken the wrong turn. Another reason the prohibitionist view is wrong is that it ignores Christian history. C.S. Lewis points this out in saying this, I strongly object to the tyrannical and unscriptural insolence of anything that calls itself a church and makes teetotalism, how many know what that is? Teetotalism means uh, that no alcohol whatsoever, and makes teetotalism a condition of membership. Don't they realize that Christianity arose in the Mediterranean world where then, just as now, wine was as part of the normal diet as bread? As much as bread. When we think of extremely conservative Christians, I mean extremely conservative, uh, we could bring up the Puritans who came to this nation, right? The Pur- we, we talk about puritanical belief. I like what one commentator says is this. Oddly, people who deny themselves pleasure with aesthetic legalisms are commonly accused of acting puritanical. The Puritans and pilgrims, when they came here, here's what they did. They enjoyed reading books, making music, drinking beer and rum, swimming, ice skating, hunting, fishing, archery, and bowling. In fact, the first permanent building that was built on Plymouth Rock, do you know what it was? It was a brewery. The first permanent building was a brewery. Martin Luther, who is the father of Protestantism, we're all in this camp. Well, most of us are in this camp. The father of Protestantism, Martin Luther, he married a beer brewer and asked for it in his love letters to her while he was away preaching. John Calvin, another father of the faith, here's what he did. This is interesting. He required that his salary include 250 gallons of wine a year. I didn't negotiate that when I came here, did I, Dale? No, okay. (laughs) One of the most outspoken Christians in our nation was one of the founding fathers named Samuel Adams. Don't get started, it's not the same company. He did sell beer and products to make beer, but it's not the same company as today. How do we get where we are today in relation to the prohibitionist view? How did we get there? How did we get here? In America, at the turn of the 19th century, uh, people were just indulging too much. They were they were using it in excess. They were getting drunk. They were they weren't loving their spouses. They weren't loving their children. They weren't doing what God had called them to do. And so it started what was called the temperance movement in the United States. The temperance started in Great Britain, but it made its way over here. The temperance movement. This movement was a call to just stop drinking altogether. It led to prohibition in the U.S. and in the church. 
So during this time of prohibition in the church, historically during communion, they would take real fermented wine, right? So during this time of prohibition, what do you do? There was a man, there was a Methodist minister during that time. His name was Dr. Thomas Welch. Dr. Thomas Welch invented a pasteurization formula for grape juice. And we have now Welch's grape juice. How many know Welch's grape juice? We're going to use it in just a little bit here today for communion. Amen? In many Protestant churches, that's what they use. The culture was moving from one side to another. The movement had gained a lot of steam, and its members were really religious. And so now what we have in the church is a movement that's based in legalism. We have a movement that was essentially based in legalism. That's the prohibitionist view. There is another view. Go to the next slide. The the next view is this, the abstention view. The abstention view. Listen to this. I like this. The abstention position does not believe that drinking alcohol is a sin, but it encourages people not to partake in it because of the dangers it might bring. This is the abstentionist view. It doesn't believe it's a sin, but it encourages people don't don't take part in it. There's danger in it. Romans 14, 20 through 21 says this. Listen to this. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better, listen to this now, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to stumble. Amen? What does this mean? We have to be aware and careful that we aren't leading those around us to fall into something that we may be strong in, but they may be weak in. We have to be careful. They, we might be very strong in it. One pastor said it this way. I, lo- I love this. As Christians, we should understand that people matter more than issues and relationships are more important than our freedoms. Amen? We want to be about loving people here. We want people to know that relationships are more important than freedoms. You say, well, Pastor David, uh, all food is clean. That's all right. What do you value more, the freedom or the relationship? It's a good question. We want to value people. I would say this. There's nothing unbiblical about the abstentionist view. There's nothing unbiblical about it. However, there is a danger in it becoming legalistic. I would never drink an alcoholic anything around somebody who is struggling with alcoholism, who has a family history of it. Why? Because out of love for this person, I will forego my freedom for relationship. There was a story that was told by a pastor about a a man who had overcome his drinking habit and as alcoholism was in his family history and he had, he had overcome it in his own life and then he met a woman and they were going to get married. And she, uh, she didn't have an issue with drinking alcohol. And he said to her, he said, listen, um, I, I hope this isn't a big deal. I hope it's not a deal breaker or nothing, but I can't be around it at all. I can't smell it. I just can't be around it. 
It will trigger temptation in me. It will lead me to bad places. I just can't be around it. Will you abstain for our married lives? She said, I love you. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Because it didn't, ha- it didn't have a hold of her. Because she valued relationship over her freedom. Amen? We want to value relationships over freedom. We never want to do anything that causes somebody to stumble. You say, well, Pastor David, you know, I mean, there's different situations. What if I'm with a group and uh, I'm around people or not around people? What do you do? This is where we're going to get into. I will say this. Uh, the only danger in this view is that it become it can become legalistic. One theologian said this, the premise of the view isn't that alcohol is sin, but that it leads to sin. And that's where there's a bit of error. You say, Pastor David, what do you mean? There's error there? Yeah, there is. The view says that because somebody struggles with something, we should just get rid of it. Because somebody struggles with something, we should just get rid of it. But how many know that that could be said about anything? How many, how many know somebody who struggles with food? Come on. How many know somebody that struggles with shopping to excess? How many know somebody that struggles with the internet? And if, if we just see, well, if there's a problem with it, if somebody's going to abuse it, we just get rid of it. See, the problem, one pastor said, the problem is when my conscience has a problem and I want to bind your conscience. The problem is when I have a problem and I want to bind you with my problem. What we need to see is that it may not be an outside influence. In reality, it is a heart condition. It is a heart condition. One pastor had this great analogy. He said, Let, let's say one day a man got drunk and angry. And, and in anger, in his anger, he put on some shoes and grabbed a stick and hit somebody. He ran outside and smacked somebody with a stick. How many can picture it? All right. Would it then be right to get rid of alcohol, shoes, and sticks? Chuckling, it's okay. The answer is no, because first, it's a heart condition. We can't get get rid of everything in this life because some people use it sinfully. How many know that there's a lot of things people can use sinfully? How many have ever seen people use the Bible sinfully? I have. We don't want to get rid of it, right? Amen? We want to use it rightly. We want to use it the way God intended. We can't get rid of everything because people use it sinfully. The last view is this. It's called moderation. The moderation view. In this view, we have the freedom to eat or drink what we'd like. We have the freedom. Some people are like, yeah, we're at the good one. We have the freedom to eat or drink what we like, but we, but, but here's what I would say. And biblically, you do. I believe this is the most biblical position. But you have to move forward with wisdom and caution. Amen? We want to be careful that in this freedom, we don't violate the Holy Spirit speaking to us. As Christians, first and foremost, we hold on to God's law. Amen? Not man's law, not our own judgment. God's law. Well, this is what I think about it. I don't care what you think about it. What does the Bible say about it? 
Well, no, no, you don't understand. This is my position. I don't care about your position. What's God's position? Because that's the one I'm following. Amen? As a Christian, we have to be careful that we're not violating the Holy Spirit speaking to us. God may call you to abstain. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Some God may call you to abstain for a season or for a lifetime. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? Amen. By the way, in no way am I advocating that all Christians should eat or drink whatever they want, and that if you don't, you're bound by legalism. I'm not saying that at all. Can you hear me? I am not saying that. What I am saying is actually just the opposite. I want you to hold on to the context of this. What I'm saying is that biblically we have freedoms. Biblically we have freedoms, but those freedoms should be used with wisdom and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Amen? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen? Whatever you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This is the view that I believe is the most biblical. In this church, we want to make sure everything we do is to the glory of God. Amen? From what we eat to what we drink to how we worship is how we're worshiping to the glory of God. I want us to keep that in mind this morning. If I could have uh, Carol or... Whoever's going to take care of the communion ushers. Uh, Jenny, if we could have you come up and play. As we take communion this morning, I want us to keep that in mind. This in mind, that in everything we do, we want to give Him glory. Amen? In everything we do, we want to praise Him. We want His name to be lifted high. We talk about it in church, as a Christian church, lifting high the name of Jesus. You say, well, Pastor David, you've talked about alcohol, you've talked about the miracle, the water turning to wine. Where does that leave us? Should Christians drink alcohol? Can they? Should they? We have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For some people, that may be not a big deal. For some people, the Holy Spirit may speak clearly and say, stay away from it. You know, uh, my father, before he got saved, he got saved the day after I was born. You know that? It's funny. He took one look at me and said, oh, Lord, what did I do? (laughs) Came to Jesus right there. No. He got saved the day after I was born. He said, you know, I, I, I... I, I do, I love my father. We don't always see eye to eye. We've had troubles. We've had disagreements. But I will say this. I don't know what his family history was like, but I know that my grandfather abused alcohol. Some people may have a family history of it. You don't want to be anywhere near it. Seriously. I know that my grandfather abused alcohol. I know that my father did before he came to know the Lord. What I am so grateful for is that when he got saved, he basically said, 
and, and this is not for everyone. It's not, this is not the direction. It's, it's what the Lord spoke to him. Everything you did before, you don't do it anymore. And so in my house growing up, it was never an issue for me. It was never a question. It was never where I woke up with white knuckles like, oh, I gotta have a drink. It was never like that. For some people, it is. We have to understand addiction. We have to understand people struggling with things. We have to be careful as Christians not to offend. Amen? We have to be careful as Christians to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Number one, above all, is God's law. Not our opinions, but God's law. What does the Bible say about it? Amen? Amen. If you'll stand with me this morning. If you can, uh, if we're, we're going to take just a couple minutes and we're going to take communion together. We are, we are taking Welch's grape juice. I smelled it. I know what's going on. It's fine. If you guys take just a few minutes, this side come over here, this side come over here, and we'll meet you right back here up front in just a minute. I am thankful for the blood of Jesus. Amen. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Lord, I thank you for your blood that was shed at Calvary. Man, thank you for that bloody cross that took my sin and washed me clean. Lord, I pray over each person here today, Lord, that you would bless them. Lord, throughout this week, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would draw us near to you, that that your law would be number one priority in our lives. That we would follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That you would bless us, that you would keep us. That you would cause your face to shine down upon us. And Lord, that you would give us rest. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. It is uh, just after 1210. You have plenty of time to get to your Super Bowl parties. So uh, God bless you. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.